0: Exodus chapter 1, and we are going to... I want to just give you a little heads up at the beginning. Um, Today, we're going to spend a lot of time in the background introduction part of this study. Why? Because there's probably no Old Testament event, maybe other than creation, that is questioned as being legitimate and true more than the exodus of the children of of Israel out of Egypt. Just pretty much flatly denied by, by all scholars, um, and even ridiculed, laughed upon, called fairy tale, and so forth. And yet, this is a pivotal moment in, in the nation of Israel. Um, this is where the Passover celebration is going to be established. Passover significant to us as Christians because this is the feast that Jesus fulfilled and so if all of this is just kind of fairy tale and just made up and you can't believe and you can't trust it, then what does it mean about their deliverance? What does it mean about our deliverance? What does it mean about anything you read in the Bible? And so, um, you know, maybe you were like me and um, unaware that there was such hostility towards this. When I was living as a missionary over in Australia, I decided I to take some Bible college classes. Um, enrolled in about three, four, five, I don't know, could have been longer weeks into this, um, I began to put two and two together. I'm like, wait a minute. This guy does not believe that there was a mighty exodus out of Egypt. And this is my, this is the Old Testament scholar. And I said, I go, hang on a second. I said, so you're saying they, they left in 1250 BC. We believe that the Bible, you're going to see 1446 is what the Bible teaches so clearly. And he, and he goes, yes. And I said, so do you believe in a, the, the, a legitimate exodus? He goes, well, I believe that people left um, Egypt. I said, do you believe there was a mighty Red Sea parting, there was 10 plagues, and there were millions of people that um, left Egypt? And he was kind of just dodging it. I said, so you don't believe in the uh, historical exodus? To which he said nothing. And I thought, if anybody accused me of that, I would immediately stand up and defend my position. So um, at that point in time, I just felt like I had sat in his class for six. I can't remember how long it was, but it was, a long, it was a year-long class. And I'd been there about six, eight weeks. I said, forget it, I'm out. Because not so much that he had a different point of view, but because he was, he was deceiving us. And he wasn't telling us that if you push this domino and you write down that you believe 1250, now all of a sudden you don't believe in the, uh, the Red Sea, you don't believe in the 10 plagues, you maybe don't even believe that there were Israelites in Egypt, at all, and, and this is a very popular um, belief today among liberal scholars, um, certainly among secular scholars. I won't say all because all never usually fits very well, but in vast majority, do not believe. They say there's no evidence for this, and I'm just I want to begin to lay out a little bit of information to you that shows there is. There is plenty of information that we can look and say, hey, this seems to line up historically. But I want to be very careful that I do this in the right way. The word of God does not need to be established by archaeology. Do you understand that? The word of God is truth and it is inspired. And sometimes um, people will dig in the right place and find an artifact that has been preserved. And when they read it and they find it, they'll say, oh, look, this Um, aligns with what the Word of God already says. And so we believe that archaeology is um, helpful to the skeptic. It can can encourage our faith, but the Word of God says what it says, and we believe it and we trust it. So some of the information I'm going to give you today, not all of it, some of it, um, on the kings of Egypt and so forth. Um, This is a a, a historical... a historical sketch based upon these data points we have. Um, those things could change if more information is discovered, but what won't change is what we read in scripture of a mighty exodus and deliverance. So I want to give that little caveat because things do change. Now tonight, um, we're going to do something a little bit different from 6 to 8, we're going to be showing a video that um, I believe does a phenomenal job. It's not a repeat of what I'm going to share. I was very careful to not share um, the vast majority of what we're going to read tonight, but to give you a flavor of it. Um, And it just does an excellent job laying out the archaeology and the biblical chronology of the Exodus and overlaying those together. I hope you'll come. You'll be blessed. So with that as an introduction, who wrote the book of Exodus? Well, Moses is the one that is, that wrote the book of Exodus. He, um, of course, the Exodus, we're going to find out, happened in 1446 B.C. It's there on that pamphlet of yours. It happened in 1446. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So somewhere between 1446 and 1406, um, um, this was written, obviously, probably more towards the 06 because all the events that we're going to read about. So that would be a... Uh, the, the who wrote, and about the time that he wrote. But let me give you a general timeline. Jacob and his family came down to Egypt and joined Joseph, who had been sold into slavery, into Egypt around 1876 B.C. That is when he came. Remember, the, the higher the number in B.C., the further back in time you go. The lower the number, the closer you get to um, us, right? Um, our day so that just it's reverse order of uh, how we count today uh, Moses and, and actually can you put up that slide um, of the of the the map there so in 1876 I think I gave it to you um, and then they actually ended up going up to where that arrow is that's the land of Goshen remember Joseph said hey um, ask for this land. It's great land for the flocks. Let them know you're sheepherders. When they find out you're sheepherders, they're not going to want to have you living with them. And so this will be the land. It's actually um, the area that I believe you just write this down. It's better known today as Avaris, A-V-A-R-I-S, Avaris. But this is where they, they came in 1876, land of Goshen. And there's lots of remains found in Avaris where they, um, they settled um, Moses is born in 1526 BC. So just a few data points. It, it will help as we go through. And of course, we'll we'll get more into him next week in, in chapter two, or in our next study, uh, chapter two. And then the Exodus takes place, as mentioned, in 1446 BC. They wander the wilderness for 40 years. Moses dies and Joshua leads them into the promised land Around 1406 B.C. So those are four important dates. Jacob, 1876, comes to Egypt. Moses, born in 1526. He lives 120 years. Exodus happens in 1446, led by Moses. And then he dies, and the children of Israel go into the promised land, led by Joshua, in 14. 6. So how do we arrive at the date of 1446 when the vast majority of liberal scholars and secular scholars would say, no, this is probably more around 1250 BC. That's, that's 200 years difference. Why do we say that it's 1446? And I am so glad you asked that. because it's easy to figure out. First um, Kings chapter 6, verse one. Tells us that Israel had existed in the land 480 years before, before Solomon's fourth year as king, and so Solomon's fourth year as king—you can go study this on your own—but it was 19, or excuse me, 996 BC. So if you add those 480 years, it gives you what? 1446 B.C. So it's based upon the chronology given to us so clearly in Scripture. Let me read the passage. 1 Kings 6, verse 1. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. So, I mean, it really nails down the time for us. But there's another place as well that gives us a timestamp, a biblical timestamp, and this is how we come to the, the date of 1446. In Judges 11, uh, 16, I have 1116, I think it's supposed to be 1126 actually. 11, Judges 11:26. 11, I'll read the verse. It says, "While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, in Aror and its villages, and in all the cities along the banks of Arnon, for three hundred years, why did you not recover them within that time?" So probably that whole section of Judges chapter 11. Well, Judges 11:16 tells us that they had been in the land for three hundred years at the time of Jephthah, who reigned at 1100 B.C. Yeah, three hundred. To 1100, you get 1400, and they wandered the wilderness for how many years? 40, so this brings you to 1440. So again, right at the time of what we believe uh, the exodus took place. So this is how we arrive at the date biblically. That's why you would call it the traditional or the biblical point of view for 1446. We'll talk more about that as we, we move along. But I want to now go into some of that other information that I was talking to you about with um, some of the the information about the kings of Egypt. Because I don't know um, if you're like me, but whenever you're reading, you read about this king or this queen, and you're wanting to to know. And so um, much of this information um, coming from that video, but also from a... um, Uh, A guy who's done a ton of research on this, his name is Douglas Petrovich, and um, so much of this information borrowed from him. But in Egypt's history, something took place where there was a great change, and we're going to read about it here in just a moment. And we read that there was a king that came on the scene that did not know about Joseph. And and we can match this with some Egyptian history. Um, And that's under a a king by the name of Amos I, Pharaoh Amos I. And he was around 1560 to 1550 BC. And what he did was he um, overthrew a, a group of foreign occupiers that ruled and reigned for centuries. And they were known as the... Hyksos rulers, probably Amorites. Uh, they were from Canaan. They were descent. They were of Semitic descent, like the Jews. Um, they are not from Abraham, but of that same family line going back in history. And so he rises up and, in nationalistic pride, and overthrows these foreigners. And now, rulership and leadership returns to the ethnic uh, Egyptian. And we begin what is known as the 18th and 19th dynasty of Egypt. But it's Amos I is the one who did this. And so it is probably this king that we read of in Exodus 1.8 that did not know of Joseph. And so if their concern was to throw off foreign powers and you have an ever-increasing uh, population of Israelites into the millions in your land and you've just thrown off uh, other foreign powers, you can imagine why there would be some concern and also some political equity to come against foreign leaders, me, foreign inhabitants, this time Israelites, who also are of Semitic and from Canaan. So you can see some similarities there. And there begins an oppression against the children of Israel. Um, Amenhotep I was uh, the king uh, that followed his father Amos the I. And then one king that certainly is going to be of great interest to you is Thutmose I. And this would have been the king that was alive at the time of Moses' birth. This is the king that said, throw your babies in the Nile. Thutmose the And he had a daughter by the name of Queen Hatshepsut. And she was from 1504 to 1483. There's an image of her. What is significant about her, it's widely believed that this was the adopted mother of Moses. So... You can see the the controversy that exists. You have a new movement. Um, It's a couple of generations into it now with uh, this queen. But a movement against the Israelites. And there's one floating in the Nile in the basket. His name is Moses. And she decides to bring him in. Going and defying her father... Thutmose the first order to throw the babies into the Nile. She draws them out. Miriam, Moses' bro- uh, sister, is there to say, if you need a nurse, I know a lady. And um, it ends up being Moses' mom, and she is able to care for and nurse. Um, so this, this quite possibly um, is, is the lady that was Moses' stepmom. Now, moving on to another king, Thutmose III, Um, from 1504 to 1450, took power while he was very young and actually would have probably been like a younger stepbrother, some family relation to Queen Hatshepsut. So she actually ruled for a while. That's why there's so many images of her. And so, um, but this Thutmose III, when he finally was old enough to take power, would have been the king that chased Moses out of the land of Egypt. And so, again, you can just you can follow it. Now, why why is that significant? Why even bring that up? Because there's a there's reference to the fact that um, when um, while the entire time Moses was out in Midian for those forty years, there was a king that was ruling. There's only two kings in the history of Egypt. That lived for a long enough period of time that that could have been, and only one of them fits the chronology of a 1446 Exodus, and it's Thutmose or Moses the Third, and those are some images of him. Then the other king that's really significant is Amenhotep the Second. This would have been the the king or the pharaoh at the time of the Exodus. And um, this guy, of course, was hard-hearted. We know that, right? He was unwilling to let the children of Israel go. This would have been the king that um, had the ten plagues come upon him. This would have been the king whose army chased the Israelites down to the Red Sea, and his army was consumed in the waters as it as it closed. Um, And so, there's a couple of interesting things about this guy, though. Um, Amenhotep II, the king of the Egypt. Uh, excuse me, of, of the exodus. Um, so we know that the exodus happened in 1446. Um, Passover happens in the spring. I think it was April of 1446 that the Passover would have been um, that year. And so they, when they left um, and then the army was defeated, uh, the, Israel, the Egyptians had nobody to do their work. They had no slave. They lost their workforce. So the Egyptian records, not biblical, but the Egyptians' records tell us that Amenhotep II sent a military force up into Canaan and he gathered 101,128 captives and slaves. That's a lot of slaves. And we we can understand why because he had just lost them. But when you compare this to his first campaign where he got 2,200 slaves, you can see a big difference. That there's, he wants far more. His father, Thutmose III, uh, he had some campaigns that brought back 5,900, 217, and 494. So the numbers are huge under Amenhotep II, and it would fit, does, it's not biblical certainty, but it just fits with what's going on and why there would want to be so many um, slaves being taken. The other thing that's really interesting is. Around this same time, um, not all of them, because I just showed you an image of her, but many of the images and the name of Queen Hatshepsut um, were defaced. And her image was, you know, chipped away. Her name was erased. Images were kind of washed clean so you couldn't see her. Don't know why. But think for a second. If that is the adopted mother of Moses and you are the II, who has lost your firstborn son, and you've watched your army drown in, the, in the, the Red Sea, and you've had the ten plagues happen, how do you feel about the lady who kept Moses alive that just led the Exodus? You don't have good feelings about her. And so she's already dead. But Egyptian belief was that if you wanted to live in the afterlife, you had to have an image that would remain, and your name needed to remain. This is why they went to great lengths to preserve themselves, their names, and their images. So if you go and your image was removed and your name was lost on this earth, then you would die a second death in the afterlife. Now, that's not biblical, but that's their belief system. And so for him to go and do this was like trying to kill her and put her to death. So, again, a lot of information. Um, These kings are not named in the Bible. But when you read their history and you know the biblical narrative, you can begin to overlay that and say, wait a minute. Why the the fuss that there's no information, there's no archaeology? And essentially, the reason is, and we'll get to it in just a moment, is because they date the Exodus at 1250, not 1446. And so all of the information I just gave you is, you know, around the 1446 date. But for them, that's far too early. And they'll say, no, that's just two centuries or three centuries too early based upon the information I just gave you. You know, and what what king we're talking about. So it can't be that. Now, it fits perfectly, but it can't be because it's the wrong period of time. And we'll talk about why that is as we work our way through uh, chapter one. So, there's the introduction. I, hopefully, if you've ever been exposed to this stuff before, you found this helpful. If not, we're going to refer to it many times as we go through um, in smaller little pieces. Hopefully, it'll start to stick in your, your mind and in your notes. But here's a quick outline for the book of Exodus. Chapters 1 through 18 deal with God delivering Israel out from underneath the oppression of the Egyptians. Chapters 19 through 34 will deal with God establishing the law, giving the law whereby Israel would worship Yahweh. Verses 35 through 40 gives us great detail about the tabernacle that they were to construct where they would worship the Lord while they were traveling. It was a temporary structure. So with that let's move to Exodus chapter 1. We begin looking at verses 1 through 7, and we see that the children of Israel increase despite the difficulty that they found themselves under. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt, each man in his household with Jacob. I mean, it's 1876. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. For Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly. Multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. This is in direct fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. That he would have descendants that would be like the stars of heaven or the sand in the seashore. Genesis 22:17. Blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And it seems like the Pharaoh had a little bit of dread about them possessing the gate. And so but God's word to Abraham is coming to pass. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 7, we're going to read that there was 600,000 men in Israel living in Egypt at this time, plus women, plus children. You have a massive amount of people. You have millions of people that are living in Egypt at this time, at a time when they're trying to regain control of their country and drive out foreigners, and yet there's this massive group of people that are also Semites, like the Hyksos that you ran out a couple of centuries earlier, and now what do you do with them? Because they're increasing, and they're growing in number. And as we're going to read in just a moment, they're growing in number under oppression and persecution. But again, the word is true. It's just what God told Abraham would, would take place in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. The Lord said to Abraham, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers and a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. Also, the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possession. And the Egyptians were judged, the ten plagues, the Red Sea, and, of course, when they left, they asked for all of their... Um, jewelry and gold and they were glad to give it to him just to get these people out of their land and so they left and they plundered the nation of Israel just like the prophecy given to Abraham declared would take place God's word is certain God, God's word is true and so when we read about a literal exodus or we read about the children of Israel passing through the Red Sea or ten plagues we believe it because God it's in the Word of God, and there is all kinds of prophecy that helps us along the way to tell us we're re- reading something that is not just the writings of men, but these are actually writings that are inspired of God, and we can trust them. In the next verses, 8 through 14, we read about this new king. We mentioned him already, Amos the first. but let's read beginning at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and go up out of the land. Or it could be translated, and cover the land. Like, as in... Authority and power. So it can be translated either way. Verse 11 Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh cities, supply cities, Python and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So again, this king is Amos the first. He's the one that's throwing off these Hyksos rulers that are from uh, Canaan and is, 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 is fighting against him. And Acts chapter 7, it makes reference to this same king, a different kind of king. So when we read that, we can actually find in the Egyptian history an event that corresponds with what we're talking about. But what I want you to see right there, and I mentioned this just a moment ago, that many believe that this happened in 1250, not 1446, like the Bible says. Why? Would they say that? And they appeal to verse 11, where we read that they built for Pharaoh supply cities of Python and Ramesses. Well, Ramesses, without question, this city was built in right around 1250. It's pretty well documented that it was built at this time. So the thought is, well, if it says that they built this city at 1250, they couldn't have been gone 200 years prior They didn't return to Egypt to build it. So what do we do with this? Well, interesting. If you turn back just a couple of pages into Genesis to chapter 47, verse 11, we're going to read when Jacob is coming down uh, to meet them, 1876 uh, B.C., where they stop. And so this is 47, verse 11. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Ramesses is, um, yes, it is a particular, it is one of their uh, uh, kings, some of their kings use this name, but it's also a reference to their god, Ra. So there's, there's that to deal with. But not only that, what we're reading here is that as this was being written and then later translated and maybe um, the name of a city being updated for readers so that as they read it, they could identify a particular location that these names would be given. So it could be written at a later time using a modern name rather than the ancient name for the sake of the readers. And certainly this is what's going on as we are in Genesis 47, verse 11. No reference to them building it, but it's referring to the land of Ramesses. So it happened already once in Scripture that um, centuries before Ramesses was ever built that the author is referring to Ramesses um, uh, so that it might be a a more contemporary name. Um, probably for the reader. So that is one, those are two explanations that just Ramesses is the name of their God, Ra, but also they would update it. So this is what they hang their hat on is this, this, this point, but you'll, if you go through scripture, you will find that many times, and we do this even to this very day, we will give a modern name to an ancient city, even though we may be referring to the time of the ancient city. So, um, you, as I've taught through the, uh, you know, New Testament, and many times we're talking about Asia Minor, I may right after that say Turkey, because Turkey is the modern-day name for Asia Minor. And so we'll, we'll make references like this. It doesn't mean I'm saying that you know they weren't in Asia Minor. I'm just giving you a name that helps you identify the geographical location. So the writers of Scripture would often do that type of. Updating of names to help people as they read. So that seems to be a very reasonable um, explanation. So Amos I, um, ruling, fights off the Hyksus, uh, uh Semitic people and yet is concerned about these other Semitic people, the Jews, the Israelites, still dwelling in there. And so he comes up with a way to try to destroy them and try to limit their numbers. But it doesn't work, does it? With everything that he seeks to do, their numbers increase. Why is this? Because God has given a prophecy. He has told Abraham, your descendants are going to be down in bondage for 400 years, but they're going to grow. They're going to multiply. I'm going to take care of them. When they leave, they're going to plunder the people that have enslaved them. And so the Lord is priming them for this exodus and is increasing their numbers. But as this happens, they have more rigor, more uh, harm and hardship is placed upon them. Satan has always had people in politics and government happy to do his work against the kingdom of God and the people of God. And, of course, when it comes to the children of Israel, there's a long history of this, isn't there? Trying to wipe them out. You know, we should give thanks for the freedom that we have in this country. And we should not just be glad to have it and preserve it. But we should seek to utilize it for a kingdom that's far greater than the one we're living in right now. And it's the kingdom of God. Whatever freedom we have, whatever liberties we have, whatever resources we have, thank the Lord for it. May Pray that the Lord would preserve it. But we take advantage of this to promote and worship the king and to promote the kingdom of God. Things can change so quickly. How many days, how many months, how many years, how many decades, nobody knows, do we have left? To use well the freedom and the resources that we have as Americans, we must be good stewards of what the Lord has given to us. But so Satan is attacking, he's wanting to destroy them. Travel to the 30,000 foot level. Let's look down on the story. In Genesis, God creates man, places him in the garden. It's a perfect relationship with God, but man rebels and sins against him. They are removed from the garden. And he says, in the day that you sin, you will surely die. Now there's a curse of death upon man. All that God had planned for man has now been changed. But the Lord says to Eve, I will give you a descendant, and this descendant will destroy the one who brought this curse upon you, upon the serpent. So there was a promise of a deliverer, a Messiah that would come. And as we journey through the book of Genesis, we see the tension around them, be, the ladies being able to have children, or the rivalries that developed inside of the families, or you know the, the death, the threats against them. And the whole time we're reading through Genesis, the idea, is Can you feel the tension? Are we going to get a son? Because sons keep getting killed. Ladies can't have children. And there's this tension that surrounds the promise of a deliverer. Well, finally, the promise comes to Abraham and goes to Isaac, goes to Jacob, and then to his son Judah, that a descendant will come. Well, now these are all down here in Egypt, as we just read. And now he wants to begin to oppress them. And we see the working of Satan trying to to, uh, stop the fulfillment of salvation. Let's keep reading verses 15 through 22. We'll keep developing that idea. Then we read here, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. This would have been Thutmose I. This would have been the king that was alive at the time of Moses' birth. Thutmose I. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shiphrah and the name of the other was Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mighty so everything they're trying to do is backfiring and so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them so pharaoh commanded all these people saying every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive so again we should fill the tension wait a minute It's going to be a son that's going to be born who will be the Messiah who will bring deliverance. If all of the sons are going to be killed, what is the hope of there ever being a Messiah to come and reverse the curse that mankind is under? And that is the tension that should be felt as you read this. Again, Satan always trying to stop the coming of the Messiah. I mean, you can read in the book of Esther where he tries to wipe out all the people under the, the, the order of Haman, right? And, and yet God stops that. He raises up um, godly Queen Esther to stand in the gap for such a time as that and stop that genocide of the people of Israel. But even down to the birth of Jesus, when the king finds out that a child has been born, what does he decide to do? He issues a decree that all the, the young male children shall be put to death in the region around Bethlehem. There are many times, I think there's three times where they try to wipe out all the male children. And we just refer to two of them. Because Satan doesn't want to see the Messiah come. So we see him resisting it from Genesis all the way to the birth of Jesus. He crucifies him. He thinks maybe he's won. But of course, that is not winning. Jesus triumphed over his enemies in the crucifixion when he rose from the dead and liberated us all and the fulfillment of Genesis takes place. Jesus ascends and goes to the Father. Now what does Satan do at this time? He has spent the last 4,000 years trying to stop the coming of the Messiah and the Deliverer. You know what he's done for the last 2,000 years? He is seeking to stop there be a people... To whom the second coming of the Messiah will be significant. And who are those people? It's the nation of Israel. Jesus talked about it. We read about it recently. Read Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21. That the Lord is coming back to rescue the nation of Israel in the second coming. Read the book of Revelation 6 through 19. Read Zechariah. Read Joel. Jesus is coming back to rescue the people of Israel. Now, What is his desire? That's why this is how you can understand the anti-Semitic attacks, the genocide that has repeatedly, not just during World War II, come against the children of Israel. Because if there is no people of Israel, then why is there a need for a second coming to rescue? So this same anti-Semitic, satanic uh, plot and plan is still in place. But the Israelites will be preserved and the Lord will return and he will set up his kingdom and fulfill those prophecies to him and we will rule and reign with him as followers of Jesus Christ. So this is what we see going on, this attempt to wipe them out. One of the other criticisms made against the idea that the children of Israel were, um, had an exodus is that they were never even there. Or if they were there, they were there in such small numbers, it's completely insignificant. But then, you know, they keep digging, something turns up, and one thing that turned up is something called the Brooklyn Papyrus. They didn't find it in Brooklyn. I don't know why it's called Brooklyn, actually, but it's the Brooklyn Papyrus. And in this, there's a list of uh, many slaves' names, and it's a list of what a husband was passing on to his wife. And some of the names that are mentioned are biblical names. And wouldn't you know it? One of the names, we just read it there in verse 15 is the name Shifra. Shifra is on this list, Asher is on this list, Issachar is there, um, a form of Jacob is on this list, and many other biblical names. So um, indeed, the children of Israel. Um, and even biblical names that are used of the children of Israel are found there. So, um, not saying this is a reference to the shipwreck that we just read about, but that it was a common name and that this was being passed, uh, the names being passed on is pretty clear from the evidence. But these midwives, they feared God. It didn't matter what big old mighty Pharaoh wanted, they feared God more than they feared this man. And so they were not going to take part in this genocidal political effort to wipe out male children. And it seems like the Lord helped them that as they would make their way there, they would probably take their time getting there. And then by the time they got there, the children would already be born. So listen, they're born by the time we get there. We can't kill them when they're being born. And so we see that they... We're fearing the Lord, and the Lord honors them for it. So then the policy changes, and he puts it upon the children of Israel. Throw your sons into the Nile. And um, this is setting us up for what we're going to read in chapter 2 in our next study. But isn't it important for us to know that we obey God? Yes, we don't obey the dictates and the mandates and the laws of the of this present world that would cause us to disobey or not worship our Lord. You know, we've gone through a whole lot of mandates, and we have followed many of them at, here at this church. But I'll tell you one that we flat out did not follow, and that it was don't worship the Lord in church, don't sing. Because you know why? Because the Bible commands us to sing songs to the Lord, continually to lift up our voices to the Lord. And so that's not something that we did. We're like, no, I'm not, I'm not, we're not going to obey that one because there's something so clear in Scripture. We, we continue to gather together. Now, we gather together on the parking lot. We gather together in many different ways, okay? Um, but we did that because the Bible says don't forsake the gathering together of believers. So the, where the Word of God is clear and telling us how to function and how to worship and how to obey, that wins every single time all day long And whatever the consequences may be, will be the consequences. And if you think that I didn't often consider, will this be the Sunday that somebody barges into the church and arrests me, you would be wrong. I did think about that. I did have that in my mind. I didn't think it was going to happen. But I thought, how would I look in orange? You know, so um, (laughs) uh, so, uh, this was in my mind. Um, I I really didn't think it was going to happen. But it was there. And, I, and, and so there are certain things that we decided, I'm not gonna, we're not going to do this, or we're not going to do that. Like, okay, we don't have to do that, but these are the things that we must do. Here are the fundamental things that we must do as given by the Word of God. And so whatever the government does in the future, forget COVID, let's just say it's something else. Whatever the government could potentially do in the future, if the government you know, got really bad and began to oppose the Christian faith, listen, We need to be like the midwives. We need to be like Esther. We need to be like those that say, it doesn't matter what the world says. We have our marching orders from God that we should be a light and we should be a witness and we should love each other. We should love all people, that we should gather together, that we should study the word, that we should go into the world and be a light. And there are many other things, but the world telling us you can't be missionaries doesn't mean anything because we've been told to go. Well, we'll be a missionary only if we can go to countries where it's, it's free. No, God owns the world. And he said, go to the ends of the earth. So we'll go wherever the Lord leads us or calls us to. We're not going to be cavalier. We're not going to act like bad things, you know, never happen to faithful followers of Jesus. You know, we're reading of a grand deliverance, right? We read of one child that's preserved in the Nile. But if you think that other children didn't die in the Nile, if you think that people did not die under the oppression of you know, Thutmose I and these other kings, I think you're missing the point. Because what does the Lord say when Moses goes to him? He says, I have heard the, of my people. The what? Cry. The cry of my people. Because they are experiencing hardship and difficulty. Now the overall picture is they're growing, they're expanding, and they have this great deliverance. But there are households with names where they lost their children. And they experienced the difficulty. So it's not like we're uh, unaware of how hardship and difficulty can come. It really can. But listen, you can have confidence that God delivered the children of Israel. It is probably one of the most referred to events in Israel's history. This grand deliverance. And every year. They celebrate Passover to commemorate the Exodus. But we celebrate the Passover in the communion service we take. And it all goes back to this time when the Lord was delivering them. And we get, we're going to have a fun time studying through this deliverance. But it happened for them. Therefore, you can have confidence that God is going to see you through your circumstances. Now, sometimes... God will deliver you out like Moses got delivered out of the Nile. But sometimes God will deliver you through the circumstances. But God is God. And we are his children. And our job is to obey him and to follow him. We are to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says, oh king, if you think we're going to bow simply because you threaten us, you don't know who we are. Our God is able to, to deliver us out of the fire. But if not we're still not going to bow to your gold statue. We're not going to do it. God can deliver us, but if he doesn't, we're still not bowing. We can die. Because what we can't do is deny our God. What we can't do is be unfaithful to him. We can disobey you and die all day long. But what we can't do is deny our God. And that is the resolve that we must have in the day in which we live. How interesting it is, and we'll close with this point. How interesting it is that Egypt wants to destroy the sons in the Nile. Drown them in water. And yet the last thing the Lord does is the children of Israel leave the land of Egypt is what? Destroy and drown the sons of Egypt in the Red Sea. What they plotted to be evil worked out to be something that God caused them to prosper and move forward in. But it ends up being the very thing that they reap and sow. And not only that... All the other plagues where they lost people. Their numbers are decreasing um, through all the judgment. Israel's numbers are increasing despite all of the trouble. And that is our God. He is going to prosper his people. He's going to prosper his church. Does that mean people won't, you know, be martyrs? No, there's martyrs. There's there's people that, that die. But when you look at the whole picture of it, the church wins because Jesus wins. And he's victorious. And one day Jesus is going to come back. And I would love for it to be today. Love for it to be today that the Lord returns and takes us to be with him. And we will see the end of our salvation. And we will forever be with the Lord. What a beautiful hope we have in Christ Jesus. And so have confidence that your deliverer is still in the business of helping his people out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is trustworthy, that you fulfill your promises, that even in trials, Lord, you you cause the very thing you promised to flourish and grow, even when the enemy has intended evil with it. We thank you. We thank you, Lord, that one day you will return. We thank you that you triumphed over Satan on the cross. He thought he had won, but, Lord, you rose from the dead. And may you give us that same confidence in our heart and mind that you will see us through all of our hardships, you will see us through all of our trials, that you fulfill the promises you made to us. I want to give you just a moment. If you need to have your faith encouraged today, then then ask the Lord to encourage you, to strengthen you, that he'll be there for you, that he is there for you, that he doesn't have to answer his your prayers in the way you want to, but that he'll be faithful to you and he will see you through the difficulty and the hardship. And maybe you've prayed for something for years for it to go away or to change, or, and it hasn't. That does not mean God is unfaithful. It simply means God's choosing to answer the prayer of thy kingdom come, thy will be done in a manner different than what you're asking. But he's still going to do it. The kingdom of God will still be advanced. And it's the glory of the Lord, after all, that we're to be living for. Not the glory of Troy getting it his way. The glory of the Lord. And so have confidence. The sins of other people can stand in the way of what God wants to do. But that does not make God unfaithful. That just makes them sinners. Don't forsake Jesus for the sin of other people. The Lord loves you. And he, and one day you will see him when he comes and he triumphs over all. And you will be so glad that you have remained steadfast, trusting, and waiting upon Jesus. Even though you went through a time of great oppression or difficulty, just like these Egyptians or Israelites, it will end with Jesus being victorious. And you will rule and you will reign with him and it'll be glorious.